Listen to the Ancient of Days. John the Baptist said, He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. Let's pray. Father, many of us have come in here this morning with hearts that are not ready to worship you. Still filled with pride, still consumed by the things of this world, still loving the world too much. Be gracious with us this morning, Father. Make our hearts right. Enable us to hear your word proclaimed, to know that you are the ancient of days to know that your son did come from above, for he is above all, to know that he is the true witness, that he testifies to your truthfulness, Father. Show us, Lord, that you poured out the Holy Spirit on him in full measure without limit. Show us this morning your love for him and cultivate that love in our hearts for him as well. You must do this work to your glory and honor that your son's name might be magnified in this room this morning. Do this great work, I pray, in Christ's holy name. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, please open up to John chapter 3. It's a fearful thing to preach the Word of God. At times, it seems more fearful than others. This is one of those mornings. I pray that He'll be gracious with us this morning and teach us that we might really see Christ this morning. If you were with us last Sunday, we left off in the middle of a most extraordinary dialogue between John the Baptist and his disciples. John is out baptizing in Enon near Salim, and and Christ is out baptizing with his disciples in the Judean countryside. And there's a problem going on, at least in the mind of of John's disciples. They they see many of John's disciples leaving and going to Jesus, and, and they're not happy with this. And they go to They go to John in verse 26, and they say, Rabbi, he, that's Jesus, who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John says in verse 30, he must increase, Christ must increase, and I must decrease. Jesus Christ must rise in prominence and power and position and prestige. He must He is to be revered and worshiped as 
the glorious one, as the darling of heaven, he must increase. And it's so fitting that John the Baptist, whose entire ministry was to point people to Christ and lead people to the Christ, it's so fitting that his last recorded words in the Bible, it's a doxology, and it's a Christological doxology. He praises Jesus. And he says, this is who he is, this one who's baptizing. John establishes for his disciples, and by God's grace of the Holy Spirit, the church throughout the ages, the unequivocal, absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ as Lord. It's glorious, it's powerful, it's terrifying, and it should fill you with joy if you know him. Now, as a Christian, and I would argue as an evangelical Christian who loves Christ and loves the Bible, you say, you know why Christ. But so many say, but why him? Why Jesus? Why must he increase to this high place? Why is it necessary? We looked at that last week. It said, he must increase. It's necessary for him to increase. Why? Why can't it be someone else? Why can't it be another man or another prophet or another God? Why this Jesus? Have you ever asked that question? John's disciples wanted to know. They wanted to know why couldn't their rabbi be first? And in many of their self-centered hearts, they wanted to know why they couldn't be first. Many of your unsafe friends, family and coworkers, they want to know. They want to know why they can't be first. Most of them live their lives as though they are God. They want to know why you're here this morning. They want to know why you worship this Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, what are you doing here? Why do you worship this man? John offers us four compelling reasons why we ought to worship Jesus Christ as the preeminent, absolute, supreme authority. And then he closes before he's off to Herod to have his head cut off. He closes with the gospel in verse 36. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So he gives us this grand doxology of Christ, and then he says, and here's the truth. He gives us a word of encouragement and a warning for all who have ears to hear, and I pray you have an ear to hear this morning. We're gonna answer the question that John's disciples had. Why Jesus? Why must he increase? We'll ask that question, and by God's grace, use this passage to answer it, and then we'll ask a follow-up question. What does his increasing mean for mankind, and what does his increasing mean for us, for you, if indeed he is to rise to the preeminent position? So let's ask this first question. Why must Jesus increase? John, there are so many things that John could have given us, and there are multiple that we could add to this, but the four that he gives us are sufficient to have Jesus Christ as the supreme, absolute authority in your life. First, he must increase because he's above all others. He's above all other men. Look at verse 31. He, Jesus, who comes from above, is above all. 
He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He repeats it. Why? It's such a simple teaching. And yet, if we get this, we get why Christ is preeminent. He's above all. He's above all men. He's above all powers. He's above all things. He is preeminent. That word preeminent, it's a great word in the Greek. Prote, yo'u. Yeah, whatever, right? Chief, first, above all. Number one in rank, number one in influence, first. Colossians 1.18, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. Man comes from the earth. Man is born by natural means, but not Jesus Christ. You know the story. Jesus Christ was supernaturally born by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary, He voluntarily emptied himself as the son of God and he became a man. He took the form of a servant and he was born as a man. And therefore, for John's disciple or any person to exalt John or another man who is from the earth and to not exalt Jesus Christ who is above all because he's from heaven is the height of foolishness. John the Baptist says, I must decrease because he says, I am a man, I'm a sinful man, I was made from the dust, I shall return to the dust, but not so for Jesus Christ. He was born from above. He is the God-man. He is preeminent over all others. Now we should be able to stop right there, right? John's disciples should be satisfied with that, that Jesus Christ is preeminent because he's above all others. But he's so gracious, and the Holy Spirit's so gracious. It's not just that he must increase by virtue of who he is. He adds to it. John tells us, number two, that Jesus must increase because his testimony is true. Look at verse 32. Jesus must increase because his testimony is true. Verse 32. He again, Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. He, Jesus, testifies. This is similar to a court of law. He's testifying to the truth, to what he has seen and what he has heard. What has Jesus seen and what has he heard that he made known to man? What did he see? He saw the Father. He saw the Holy Spirit. He saw the heavenly realm. He saw myriads of myriads of angels worshiping him. He saw the collective desire of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to redeem fallen man. He saw the plan before we were ever created that he would come to earth as a man, that he would live a perfect life, that he would be crucified on a Roman cross and he would die for our sins. He saw that through that, forgiveness would come to man, redemption would come from man, righteousness, his righteousness would come to mankind. He saw this and he heard this. Jesus Christ is an eyewitness to the great creation, fall, redemption story. And he came and made it known to us. And that makes his testimony, without question, superior to the testimony of every other man. He testified to what he had seen and heard because he was there. Later on in the gospel, John 15, 15, Jesus tells us this, All that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Everything that the Father communicated to Jesus, Jesus communicates to us. It's such an incredible thought. 
God the Father spoke to Jesus and say, say this, and Jesus held nothing back. The manifestation of Jesus Christ is the complete redemptive story given to us. Holds nothing back. His testimony is true. Whoever receives his testimony, and what you say, what is that testimony? We looked at it in 316 of John. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You believe that, and you testify not only to the truthfulness of Jesus Christ, but you testify to the Father as well. Look again at verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony, whoever receives Jesus' testimony, sets his seal to this, that God is true. To set your seal to something was to accept it as truth, to confirm it as truth. So if you, if you receive the testimony of Jesus Christ, you receive the testimony of God the Father. If you believe Jesus and you say that is true, then you're saying God the Father is true as well. The testimony to both the Father and the Son. This was a big deal for John's disciples. They wanted to follow Yahweh. They wanted to follow the God revealed in the Old Testament. And they wanted to make sure that if they were going to follow Jesus, they were following the Father. And so John comes along and he says this to them. If you want to follow the Father, you got to follow the Son. You must hear the testimony. You must believe the testimony. What was the testimony of the Father about the Son? What was it? We know it at his baptism. We also know it at the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 5. God the Father said this of the Son. Listen closely. He said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then he says, listen to him. Because Jesus' testimony was true. The Father's testimony is true. In 1 John 5.10, John the Apostle writes a little bit later, whoever believes in the Son of God accepts his testimony. If you believe in Christ and you accept what Christ says, you don't call him a liar. And then he said, whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. Listen closely, saints. The testimony of Jesus Christ is not an opinion. It's not something that one person can say, well, this is my truth and that's your truth. This is the testimony of what was seen and heard in the heavenly realms pertaining to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you reject the testimony of Jesus Christ, you are calling God, the creator of the universe, a liar. A liar. I want you to remember that. Every time you're sharing the gospel with someone who rejects Christ, they're not just rejecting your opinion or your truth or your faith. They're calling God a liar. That is a terrifying thought, to call the creator a liar. So Jesus must increase because he's from heaven. He's fully human and fully God, and he must increase because his testimony is true, and he testifies the truthfulness of the Father. Could we stop there? We could. Sufficient. John goes on. Third point. Ready? Jesus Christ must increase, and we must accept his total supremacy because it says the Holy Spirit dwelt in him fully. Look at verse 34. It just gets richer and richer. I love doxologies. I love Christology. I love it when the Bible tells me about Jesus Christ because the more I see him, the more I love him. Look at verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. That's God the Father giving the Son the Spirit without measure. The prophets of the Old Testament, we, we know this. The Holy Spirit came upon prophets and came upon kings and came upon the judges and it came upon them 
to accomplish a particular task, and it was given in measure. I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. Judges 14.6, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. Remember Samson? And he tore a lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. The Spirit came for a particular task, empowering Samson. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, you should remember this, at King David's anointing, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David so that he might rule the kingdom of Israel faithfully. And we even know from the gospel testimony that the Spirit of the Lord came upon John the Baptist while John was in the womb. Remember, he leapt in the presence of Christ when, when they got together. This is not so with Christ. With Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God descended upon him, it says, without measure, and he remained. God the Son, powerful enough, has the Holy Spirit dwelling with him, walking with him, communing with him. What does that mean? That means for us, my beloved, that during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, he and the Holy Spirit had perfect communion and we know this because Jesus was without sin. There was no barrier between his flesh as a man and the Holy Spirit of God. They were perfect together, perfect harmony, nothing to separate them. That means Jesus Christ was able to listen and obey in love every single moment, every moment. Christ did not have a thought or a word or an action that was contrary to the spirit of the most holy God. Our sinful desires, and you know this, we battle. We battle the Spirit. Our flesh battles the Spirit, and we continue to do so even now in our saved states. The Apostle Paul made this, self clear, made this clear about himself, and this is teaching to all of us. Romans 7, 21, Paul says, I find this law at work in me, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Do you know that? You say every day of my life, you want to do right. And your flesh is there with you. He continues, For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Jesus Christ did not have that struggle because he was without sin. He delighted every moment in the law of God and then he exercised it perfectly by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was given to him without measure. And that means Jesus Christ was and is the perfect man. He's the perfect man. Flawless his whole life. Is it any wonder they hated him so much? The result of this is glorious for us. It means that he can be the unblemished lamb who takes away our sins. He can, he can die for our sins because he has no sins of his own that he needs to die for. That's great news. There's a savior for us. It also means that, that we have this model of a man who lived perfectly in communion with God the Father through the Holy Spirit that we too are to strive for in the spirit of Christ. You say, well, my, my life's more like a Romans 7. I get that. But the trajectory in Christ and the Holy Spirit is each day growing in communion and sweetness and joy and love in God. So, Jesus Christ must increase because he's above all men. He's the God-man. 
He must increase because his testimony is true and it testifies the truthfulness of the Father. And he must increase here because the full measure of the Holy Spirit remained on him and he is the perfect man. You say, all right, that's enough. I got it. That's enough. I get it. He is the one to rule. He is supreme. But John, he saves the best for last. He gives us one more. He gives the disciples one more. He says, Jesus Christ must be unequivocally supreme over all because the Father loves him. The Father loves him. Look at verse 35. Such a sweet and glorious verse. The Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, if you, if you know the gospel testimony and you know the last week of our Lord's life, you might question the Father's love for the Son. With a critical eye and an unsaved heart, you might actually say, there's no love of the Father for this man, whoever he may be. He sends his only begotten Son to become a man. How horrible. He sends him to earth, to a most rebellious creation. He sends him to a people that will not only reject him, but then consider him an enemy and kill him. He sends him to the very people that he knows will hate him most. Not only does God the Father do this, he purposes it all. God the Father for the Son purposed that he would come and be rejected, that he would come and be arrested. God the Father purposed that his Son would be beaten so brutally he'd be unrecognizable as a man. God the Father purposed that Jesus Christ would be crucified on a Roman cross, that he'd be rejected by his disciples, that he'd be left alone. But worst of all, God the Father, who supposedly loves the Son so much, would take his holy wrath and crush his Son. You don't have to be a believer to say, what kind of love is that? You don't even have to be a father to say, what kind of a love is that? Incredible love towards man, right? I mean, that Christ, that God the Father would treat his son like this to save us. Incredible love towards man. But where's the love for the son here? How is this an expression of love? That, by the way, is a legitimate question, saints. And it's not heretical to ask it. We know that the death of Christ and the grave is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. We know that the end of the story for Jesus Christ is life. It's eternal life with the Father. It's not the grave. It's not hell. It's resurrection. It's exaltation. It's absolute supremacy. The Bible tells us that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and then seated him at his right hand. God the Father said, I will raise you, and then in your resurrection, I will raise sons and daughters to be your bride, a holy church that you will commune with for all eternity. God the Father placed all things into the hand of Jesus, all power, all dominion, all authority, all in the heaven and all in the earth. This was the end of the movement of the Messiah. You know, Satan offered something to Jesus the last temptation of our Lord in the desert. Do you remember? Matthew chapter 4, verses 8, 9, and 10, listen. 
The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Verse 9, and then he said to Jesus, all these I will give to you. He had the power to do that, by the way. This was a real temptation. All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You talk about a temptation. Jesus Christ, remember, Satan was given the kingdoms of this world by God and and he comes to Jesus and he says, listen, you don't have to do the cross. Forget about that. Forget about the arrest. Forget about the persecution. Forget about being forsaken. Just worship me and I'll give you. I will make you preeminent. Jesus would not do it. He would not take the coward's way out. Why? He loved the Father. Just as the Father loved him. He loved the Father, and the Father loved him. How great is this love the Father has for the Son? Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, verse 20, and following God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. He did not forsake him forever to the grave. And then it says, he, he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. At this moment, my beloved, listen closely, Jesus Christ is head over all. The expression of God the Father's love for the Son is so extreme that in the Son doing the unthinkable, dying for our sins and being forsaken by God the Father himself, and going into the grave and embracing hell for us, God the Father says, you will not stay there. And he raises him and he blesses him and he makes him king of kings and lord of lords. He granted to Christ this great honor for Jesus' willingness to joyfully condescend for us. Christ humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Why? He decreased all the way. Saints, listen. He decreased all the way. He took the full punishment. That's hell. That's hell. He took it so that we could increase all the way with him. He decreased that we might increase. Peter says it well in 1 Peter 2.24. He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that's the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he says, by his wounds, you have been healed. If you know Christ, you have been healed. Jesus decreased first so that we might increase with him. I will argue categorically, it is impossible for Jesus Christ not to increase. It is impossible based upon these truths. He is above all men. He's the God man. Amen? Who would be over him? No one. The testimony that he brought is true and testifies to the truthfulness of the Father. Whose testimony compares? No one. He was given the full measure of the Holy Spirit and lived a perfect life. Who has lived a better life than Jesus Christ? No one. The Father loved him 
like no other and then put all things into his hands. Who's above Christ? Who has more power than Christ? No one. He must be first. He must be preeminent. He must increase to the highest heights. He is preeminent. He is the preeminent one. He must increase and we must decrease. This simple and yet so glorious truth, it ought to compel us to exalt him. It should move us to a place of saying, like John, I must decrease and he must increase every moment of every day. And I must fight for his increasing. We live in a time and a place, my beloved, and a world that hates Christ. They do everything they can to tear him down, although they have no impact on him. He reigns now. They only destroy themselves. But he calls us, his children, to magnify his name. What will compel your pride-filled heart to decrease, what will it be? What will enable your sinful lips to say, like the apostle, like, like John the Baptist, I must decrease and he must increase? What will it be? The Bible offers us several, but I'm going to give you one because I want, I want this to sink in and go deep. See clearly the glory of Jesus Christ and you will decrease and he will increase. See him. In the book of Acts, in chapter 7, most of you know that Stephen is, is testifying to the glory of Christ and they hate what he's saying. And so they take up stones and, and they kill him and in their process of stoning him, he's dying. He's physically dying. And verse 56, he looks up and he said, behold, listen, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He saw Christ. He's being stoned to death. And he sees Christ. Listen to his response. He didn't fight back. He didn't curse his enemies. He fell to his knees and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How do you do that? How do you do that? How do you pray for the one that's taking your life? Seeing Jesus, he saw Christ he saw Christ exalted at the right hand of the Father. And it, it caused him to decrease all the way in his death with great joy saying, Lord, don't hold this against them. Forgive them. I want that heart. I want that type of forgiveness in my life. I want to see Christ so clearly that I disappear, that Christ might reign. We, mu we must see him like this. We must see him as the God-man. We must see him as the truthful one with whom God is well pleased. 
We must see him as the perfect one. We must see him as the most loved one. We must see him as the one possessing all things of God. This is how we must see him. This is why we preach. This is why we teach. This is why you read your Bible. This is why you pray, that you might see Christ. See, I don't see him that well. Do you read your Bible? I don't hear him that well. Do you listen to preaching? Real preaching. Not so much of what's out there. Real preaching. You say, I don't, I don't have a love for him. Do you pray? Do you pray? These are all simple things, saints. Simple disciplines of grace. But exercised faithfully by the power of the Holy Spirit will enable you to see Christ and have the faith of Stephen and this love for God. I pray, I prayed all week that seeing Christ like this will strike a right joy and fear in your heart. A right joy and a fear. Did you hear the description of who this one is? One of those is sufficient to cause us to fall to our knees and tremble. All four? Then we could add. We could spend hours and hours and hours adding to who this one is. You must see his glory. Last year, my brother and I, my older brother and I, took my children backpacking. We went out to the desolation wilderness in the Sierra Nevadas. About 8,000 feet, we were on our day two on our hike, and we saw this peak, and we thought, we want to get up there because I bet you there's a view up there. So we left our packs, and we ascended this peak. I don't know how high we got. I know that I was breathless when I got to the top, and I was speechless because I had never seen, I had never seen God's creation so beautiful. And as I looked around, I was terrified. I was terrified and filled with joy. The same time, Revelation 4.11 came to mind. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. As I looked out upon this glorious creation, I thought, he must increase. He must increase. He is from heaven. He is the God-man. It's upon him who the Holy Spirit dwelt richly. He is the perfect one. He's the one the Father loves most. Amen? Amen. So that's true. Regardless of your approach, that's true. But your approach towards Christ matters. It mattered to John the Baptist with his disciples and it matters to Jesus Christ with us. If that's true, if we can answer that question that John had, why must Christ be first? If we can answer that, then the next question for us ought to be, well, what does that mean for us? What is the impact on us, if any? And there is, and it's eternal. John the Baptist, after this glorious doxology, before he fades away and decreases to his own death, he speaks verse 36, and verse 36 is a, it's a gospel verse. 
It's tightly packed and it's stunning. And, and essentially, John the Baptist says, you have two possibilities to the response of Jesus Christ being supremely preeminent. Two, a genuine faith in the Son that leads to eternal life or continued rebellion against the Son which leads to eternal death. He says, that's it. The response to this great testimony of the supremacy of Jesus Christ is one of these two responses. And it leaves all mankind at this very moment in one of two categories, lost or saved, alive or dead, including you. And I pray this morning that you would not presume upon yourself that you are saved because you go to church or you were baptized or you read your Bible. I pray this morning you would ask yourself, do I really know him? Because the consequences are eternal. Life or death. Look at verse 36. Are you still with me, saints? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Remember what Jesus said in John 3, 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order the world might be what? Might be saved through him. That's why he came, to offer salvation to all who believe that they might have eternal life. You know, you can take that word in the Greek, believe, and if, if it, you struggle with that, put in the word trust. Reread verse 36. Whoever trusts in the Son has eternal life, Jew or Gentile, male or female. Whoever trusts in Jesus Christ to save them will be saved. To all who repent and believe, to all who trust in Christ. That means you will not trust in yourself. You won't trust in your hard work. You won't trust in your good deeds or your water baptism or your church attendance. Listen, you won't even trust in the confession that you made with your mouth that Christ is Lord. That cannot save you. You must trust in Christ to save you. God the Father sent his Son to deal with the consequences of our sin. To die in our place, that we might be saved through him. That we might have eternal life. We talked about this two weeks ago. You need to stop thinking of eternal life as just forever and ever and ever. It is. But when John talks about eternal life, he's not talking about a time and a place. He's talking about a relationship in John 17, 3, and we'll get to this, Jesus said, and this is eternal life. You ready? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing God is life. Knowing God is eternal life. And John the Baptist is saying, through Jesus Christ, you can know God. You can know God as a father. John's disciples, they were so eager for this life of the age to come that they were missing, that it was right there now. Many of us too, we talk about and we wait with glorious expectation for the coming of Christ and the age to come. And if there's one thing the gospel of John brings to us again and again is that you can have eternal life right now. It's not a time and it's not a place, it's a person, it's God. And for all those who trust in Christ, you can know, listen my beloved, you can know God as your father. You can know the creator of the universe as your father. 
you can know Jesus Christ, the one we just heard about, as your brother, as your savior, as such a good and gracious king. You can know the Holy Spirit as your comforter and your counselor. By believing in Jesus Christ, we can know the Father and be satisfied. This is what we must take from this incredible revelation of who Jesus is. But I want you to see the latter part of this before I close. Just as all those who believe in the Son have eternal life right now and can enjoy that eternal life right now, all those outside of Christ, all those who do not trust in Christ, all those who do not obey Christ, it says the wrath of God abides on them. Look at verse 36, the latter part. This is this, this verse. This is terrifying. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. If you do not believe, trust, obey Christ... You cannot know God as your father. You cannot know Jesus as your brother. And you cannot know the Holy Spirit as your comforter. You cannot. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. John said you, you can't even see the kingdom. You can't see it. You can't see life. The Jews, to see the kingdom was to be in the kingdom and the Jews thought because they were Jewish, they automatically would inherit it. Because they were children of Abraham, they weren't going to inherit it. They couldn't see it. They couldn't have it apart from Christ. So John, John, the Baptist, the greatest Jew that ever lived, said that's not how you're saved. It's through Jesus Christ. You must believe. You must trust. You may take all of the modes of salvation, your work, your religion, your family, your bloodline, and you must throw those away and you must hang on to Christ with all your might. You must trust in him and him alone. And those who do not, John the Baptist said, the wrath of God remains on them. At this very moment, all of those that we know at this moment that do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the wrath of God's already on them. It's not just this impending judgment. It's on them now. They inherited Adam's sin. They've lived a life of sin. And therefore, the wrath of God abides. I know that in, in the in the Western world where it's so affluent, many will hear this and say, well, if this is the wrath of God, then I'm fine with it. If unsaved, this is my life, then I'm okay with the wrath of God. My beloved, is it, is it not because the wrath of God is not taught today that we would think such a foolish thought that somehow this fundamental teaching of God's holiness and a right fear of Him has become antiquated in the evangelical church today. 
So we have this misconception of the wrath of God or maybe no conception at all. We're so concerned about being contemporary and relevant and hip and feeling good that we've lost the message of the Bible. Repent and believe, for God is holy. Jeremiah chapter 5, listen to this. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30 and 31. It would do well for every preacher in this land to preach Jeremiah today. Jeremiah said, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in this land. In this land. The prophets prophecy falsely. Pastors don't teach the word of God. The priests rule at their discretion. They run the church any way they want. And then he says, and my people love to have it so. The people love it. But then he ends, verse 31, he says, but what will you do when the end comes? What will you do? What will you do? Prophets prophesying lies, priests doing whatever they want, the people loving it. What happens when the end comes? Instead of preaching the gospel like John, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, glorious news, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We tiptoe. Saints, I am so tired of tiptoe messages around the word of God so we don't offend people. We preach these, these cultural idioms and this pop psychology. You should want to scream if you don't hear the message as John preached it. Whoever believes is saved. Whoever rejects Christ is damned. That's what the Bible says. Who are we to change God's word? And I'm not talking fringe churches. I'm talking about reformed, evangelical, gospel-preaching churches that will not preach a passage like this and sit on 36. It's the most important thing John the Baptist said. Verse 36. The most important thing. I know some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy. That, that will change one day. One day you'll stand before God and say, why didn't Pastor Keith preach harder? Why was he so light with us? And I will confess that sin. So many unsaved people in churches today, so many unsaved people that have the wrath of God on them. It's so terrifying to me. I didn't know how to pray this week on this. Instead of hearing of the wrath of God and the glorious opportunity to flee to Christ, they hear about how to be a more effective employee or a more resourceful parent and not the gospel. It's the gospel that gives life. It's the gospel that saved you if you know Christ. We know the wrath of God, the wrath of man at times is unspeakable. We know the 20th century. We can barely talk about some of the things that the wrath of man was exercised. How much more so a holy God? If we look at human history and we're aghast 
at the wrath of man, how much more so a perfectly just, righteous God? How much more so? Infinitely more so. As sinful creatures, we commit sin and we see sin and we, foolish, we foolishly, we diminish it or we, we dismiss it altogether. God is perfect. God is infinitely holy. Listen, he hates, he detests, and he will destroy every sin. No sin is light. No white lie no little sin in the eyes of God. He hates and he detests and he will destroy every single sin. He pleads with man. In Jeremiah 44, 4, he pleads with man. The entire Bible, he pleads with us not to sin. Listen to what he says. Again and again, I sent my servants to prophets who said, do not do this detestable thing that I hate. We may be indifferent to sin. We may dismiss it. We may rationalize it. God never does. He hates it. This wrath that remains on man, what will it be like? I can't describe it. I did, I tried. I can't describe the love of Christ either. I can't describe... The wrath of God. If this God can with his breath flood the earth, if this God can rain down fire and destroy entire cities, if he can turn the Nile to blood and swallow entire families whole, if this God can raise up nations to destroy entire nations, because he is holy, I want you to try to imagine when he unleashes his total fury on our sin. If you get a glimpse, it'll rightly terrify you. It just takes a glimpse. And his fury does not end with physical death. His fury upon those who refuse the Son, who will not trust in the Son, who will not believe the Son. His fury is eternal. It lasts forever. There's a passage in Isaiah 63, and it talks about the analogies giving of a wine press. And, and the wine press, they would take grapes and they would put them into, it, it was like a container, but it, it had the ability to, for the grapes to be crushed. They would step on the grapes and the juice would come out and they would have juice and they'd make wine with it. In Isaiah 63, verse 3, God uses that analogy in how he will crush, pulverize, disintegrate, destroy all those who do not obey the Son. Listen, this is God the Father. He says, I have trodden the winepress alone. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood, those who refused the sun, their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel, crushing. It's a most dreadful thought, but infinitely more grievous. It's a most dreadful reality that remains on all those who do not know the sun. It is there. 
when you go back to work tomorrow, when you see family members this week, when you're visiting a friend for coffee, these who do not know Christ, I want you to see them and I want you to know the wrath of God is on them at that moment. If you say, I'm too afraid to share the gospel, I can't speak these truths, look at that person and know they're destined for hell at this moment. And then by God's grace, open your mouth. This is so, this is difficult to teach. And I know it's difficult to hear. I had a woman, she called last week and she left a message on the machine she wanted us to change our sign. Our sign talked about how God killed his son to redeem us. I think the word kills rather light given to what he did to Christ. This woman wanted us to change it because it was too hard to hear. She didn't leave her number. I so wanted to talk to her to explain to her that kill is a euphemism. That what God the Father did to Christ which the scriptures teach as almost unspeakable, he will do to every single one who rejects Christ. Let me ask you this, my beloved. What preacher, what teacher of God's word, what church is more faithful to the proclamation of the gospel of grace? Which one? Those who faithfully declare the full counsel of God just like John. His mercy and his wrath or those who take lightly or bypass the day of the Lord altogether. Which ones? You know the answer. I'll tell you this. I question the integrity and the honesty of any man of God preaching the word of God that does not teach this. I question him. I don't judge him, but I question him. If a man stands before people and he teaches the word of God and he does not teach of God's wrath, he does not teach of God's holiness, he does not teach of that dreadful, awful day of the Lord and he sidesteps and he maneuvers around, I question his integrity. I'm more apt to trust a preacher like John the Baptist. I want a John the Baptist telling me truth. Let me ask you another question. What message is more apt to compel people to flee to Christ? Which one? The light message that diminishes the righteousness of God and the holiness of God and the wrath of God? That message that leaves us children saved by grace, they might fear the Lord. Which, which proclamation is more prone to drive a sinner to the cross? Is it not, is it not verse 36? Would it not, would it not be God's gospel? That was John's, that was John's ministry. ministry. It was to direct to direct Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And that's why, and that's that's why, why his last articles are most burning in verse 36. If you believe the Son, you have eternal life. life. If you disobey the Son, you don't trust the Son, Son. And the full, full wrath of God, God means means upon you now. now. Paul, 
Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 1 again that Jesus can rescue us from the wrath to come. That's what he did. That's why he came. That's why we can teach the full gospel, including the wrath of God, and not leave here terrified that we won't be saved because we have Christ, and Christ saves. A thousand amen, sister. He saves. You say, what must I do to be saved? Trust in him. Believe him. Don't add to that. Don't add to it any work of any kind. Don't diminish the cross. Don't diminish the work. Don't say, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to be baptized. Those are all godly things. Do them. But that's not why you're saved. You're saved because God saves you. And he saves you through Christ. Trust in him. I'm going to close. I'm, I will. I'm sorry. The Pharisees came out to John the Baptist and they received one of the most loving, listen, loving, gracious, compassionate sermons they had ever heard. He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? That's pure love. That's pure love. Not a seeker-sensitive message. Pure love. For he knew those Pharisees were dead apart from Christ. And then he said to him in verse 8, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. And then he says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Flee to Christ this morning. Flee to the God-man. Flee to the one upon whom the Holy Spirit dwelt perfectly. Flee to the perfect one. Flee to the one who God loves most. Flee to him. And then out of your love for him, bear much fruit. You say, well, what is the application? Bear much fruit. Not to be saved because you are saved. Not to get into heaven because you're already in. Once you see Jesus, and you see his beauty, and you see his majesty, and you see his glory, when you see the preeminent one, you can take away hell and take away the, the punishment of sin and the consequence. Take that all away. If you see Christ, the very thought of sin will grieve you to the depth of your soul because it's against someone so pure and so beautiful and so lovely, the lover of your soul. See Christ. He must increase. John was right. And we must decrease. And if you see Christ daily, that will happen in your life. You will decrease. Christ will increase and be magnified through you. That this, this world upon which the wrath of God remains will see him too. That's what we want. Isn't that what we want? To glorify God by being living testimonies to the Savior. I want that for you, saints.
you live in such a way that Christ increases in your life. So let's, let's pray that right now. God would be so gracious with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for those of us who trust in Christ, we are humbled that you would redeem us. We know ourselves. We know our hearts. We know how wicked we are. And yet you would save us. That you would, you would do the unthinkable to your son to give us life. Thank you for that. Cause us to see as well that your wrath is terrifying and it is real. And then it remains on real people. People we know. Faces we love. Names. Make us bold, Father. Cause us to see Christ this morning, maybe in a way we've never seen before. Magnify him in our hearts and minds so that when we leave this place and we go back into the darkness, we bring the light. We bring the gospel to a world that so desperately needs it. Do this here, Lord. Do this at Camden. And do this in in your true churches throughout the world, here in the South Bay, here in San Jose. Do this great work. For your sake, for your glory. I, I thank you for John's faithfulness to preach the gospel. I thank you. These are his last words that we have recorded here. The gospel. I pray, Lord, that we would love it too. It would roll off our lips. That we wouldn't be cowards, but we would boldly proclaim the full truth. Your mercy and your wrath. In Christ's name, amen.